but welcome. We are in our third installment of our Advent series in, in the Advent season. So we, it's coming up quick. Christmas is fast approaching. And so hopefully Isaac will be with us next week to preach on the shepherds coming to sing songs over Jesus and coming to see their king. But this morning, as we've just read, we are looking at the birth. What happened? What does it look like? And so we want the Lord to be with us, for his spirit to guide us in this word. So let us pray that the spirit comes and shapes us and forms my words and makes them accurate so we learn more about who our king is. Let us pray. Lord, we come this morning humbly before you to learn about your birth, that you entered human flesh, that you bore our sins, that you came to be our mediator, Lord. And this is the first step. You humiliated yourself by coming to be a part of our history, to stand away from the king, or stand away from your father and leave the right hand. You've come to be with us among our, our shame and our troubles and our transgression. And so, Lord, let the words of my mouth preach you faithfully and honestly, and let our hearts rejoice and feel a sense of peace that our God pursues us and cares for us so desperately. And so we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. And so while we not go back all the way just yet, I want us to think about this story that happened April 1st, 1976, in a garage of a modest family home at 2066 Christ Drive in the suburbs of Los Altos, California. Out of this particular garage, two young men would begin to build a tech company that this world had never seen before. It would break um, up industries. It would become the most profitable company of all time. And not only would their products disrupt industries, but their founder would be just as polarizing. And having been the birthplace of such a massive success, the city of Los Altos has commissioned the garage to be treated as a historic landmark so people can make a pilgrimage to it. And so I'm guessing you probably already know, and I imagine Alex is already aware of what we're talking about. We're talking about Steve Jobs and Apple. He's a revolutionary to some, and the verdict is still out on others. So much so that even Steve Wozniak has begun to question this whole founder myth of what Apple began with. So are we looking at a misconception, a myth, a lie? What is it? What actually happened in that garage? And so just as we think about what it is that went on, there's people that study these things, study these what we call founders myths and why we're so interested in them. Because the long and short of it is that their research tells us that these stories are so accompanied to rags to riches or create a legacy or build a relationship around their customers to make them believe something that may not actually be true. And it's often that these myths are called to push product, they're leaned into to create a community and to build bonds to create why there's an Android versus an Apple. And so they live into these bonds. But when we hear a story like our story of, of birth of Christ, what should we make of that story? Is this just another founder's myth? Is this just something that has some allusion to something that's true? 
What is the relationship that God's trying to prove here? What is the sense of identity? What is happening in this text? And perhaps more importantly, we've got to ask ourselves, what do we think of this text? What do we believe? How does this shape us? Do we believe this is genuine history, or do we believe it's fallacy? Because well-known atheist scholars like Bart Ehrman have made a living off the suggestion that these are just forged myths, that the disciples made this up, that these are deceptions masqueraded for generations as truth. And the trouble is there is no reasonable or middle ground to compromise. We either believe he's God and he came or not. Because just like the Apostles' Creed says, it says this about Christ, you believe in Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Do we believe that? This is the word of God. Is it true? Is it true in your heart? And is it true in your mind? So ask yourselves, what do we think? And I'm guessing you can already assume where I'm going to land on what I believe, or else I'd be out of a job. And that's maybe a good thing Isaac's not here. But we believe in historical Jesus, or at least I believe that we do. And I also believe that this infant represents the most important blessing and fulfillment that God has promised to his people through his covenants that he has made with them and with us. This baby boy is the one who has promised to crush the serpent's head way back in Genesis. He is the one who is promised through the lineage of David in 2 Samuel. And the one that broke bread and shared a cup of wine with his disciples, instituting in light of what he would do for them just days later. But for now, Jesus is a newborn tucked away in a manger. As we've already witnessed in the passing weeks, that this is no ordinary birth. And while it may not directly be clear on the surface, I believe that we can infer that Luke 2, 1 through 7, highlights two very important characteristics of who God is and how he works with his people and how he has been faithful to his covenant with them. And these characteristics, as you might have already seen in the bulletin, I think we can unpack God's sovereignty and the second being his providence. For it is through these means that a new heir to the throne comes from the house of David. But unlike David, his reign will know no end. It will be established forevermore. And so that pushes us into God's sovereignty. Because essentially what it is, if you're not familiar with the term, it's talking about his power and his right that Lord has in accomplishing his work and his will. Which is exactly why Luke kicks off the second chapter of his gospel this way, showing how powerful he is. And we'll see that in a second. But it can be a little bit of a rough road in the beginning because being in the 21st century, we're not necessarily familiar with the history of it all, of what's going on, especially in the first couple of verses. We may not be aware of what's happening. And so whereas the original audience would understand what Caesar Augustus and Quirinus are not just for a setting a scene, but also for giving a context to show how amazingly orchestrated the birth of Christ actually is. For we must realize that those two men meant to Luke's original, what it meant to Luke's original audience, and what they meant to the time period for which they existed. 
Because if you know your history, you may recall that Caesar Augustus rose to power through the death of his adoptive uncle, Julius Caesar. Not Orange Julius, but Julius Caesar. And he eventually became the ruler over the entire Roman Empire in 31 BC. In some cases, Augustus showed some sense of humility and delegated much of his consolidated power back to the people and back to the government and created a Republican style of government. Legally, this led to him decentralizing his own power and rights, but many saw this as a humble act and honored him for it. They continued to worship him and saw him as a divine son of the gods. And on the other hand, Quirinus was a man of power as well. He oversaw the entire military force in all foreign affairs in the area of Syria. It was no easy task and it afforded him a great deal of power and influence among his jurisdiction. To be abundantly clear, these men were not included by Luke just to simply send Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem so that the prophecy of Micah could come true without realizing it, like Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh before them, Caesar Augustus and Quirinus are unaware that they are divine agents in God's sovereignty and his plan and his will. And so to the world, they embody the essence of power. But what the world doesn't realize is that the true power falls in the hands of God alone. That we are just agents of his will. And one commentator illustrates this beautifully as he writes, The child born in Bethlehem, the parent subjected to Roman tyranny, will ultimately challenge the existing political order and create an astonishing reversal of authority and power, not through violence, but through obedience to God and the giving of his life. How else could we look to the manger and see a good king? It's like the embellishments of that garage with Steve Jobs and Wozniak. Christianity has popularized the winsome notion that Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem just as she's about to pop. In a frenzied panic, they arrive at the local Marriott but get stuck with an Airbnb instead. But it's okay. The stable is rustic chic. It's got plenty of shiplap. And Jesus is living the dream too, right? He's got golden straw, the galore. You just plop him in there and he's going to lay down comfortably. Never mind if you've actually seen a live birth, what that may look like. But he's just beautiful. The pregnancy and birth is beautiful, which it is. I don't mean to harsh on that. I have two children and each one has been beautiful. I, I don't mean to critique that. But unfortunately, while there is some semblance of accuracy in the birth story, we tend to flatten it out and not give it the full detail and recognition that it deserves. Because for one, Jesus, or Joseph is not rushing to get there. They've been there for the census. They're not just in some inn or some hotel type thing that we think about. He's in the basement of a relative's home, sitting with their flock or cattle, whatever it may be, in the basement where they would keep their animals safe from harm. And so we kind of navigate this story in a weird tension that we see what Scripture says in other parts of the Gospels, but then we also have Luke's Testament. What does it mean? What does it look like? And so that's why we have to get into the details to see these circumstances and what plays 
Because a lot of times what we see these stories become are just a way to market something that's not the world's. It's ours. It's the church's. And we need to make clear what this story means. Because this story is unsympathetic and it's visceral and it's, it's real and it's honest. But we tend to look to a narrative that doesn't give justice to God's providence and his sovereignty. And so I'd like us to then push further in, not just in his sovereignty, but in his providence. Because we, as we have already seen in the birth narrative, God has imposed his will by using these human agents who have reached the climax of human achievement and influence. But yet the Christ, the promised Messiah, was shown no partiality, not even among the Jewish people. Or else why wouldn't the family welcome them in the main room? Instead, they're sent to the basement to be delivered this baby in a trough. Because what seems like a paradox is actually the beauty of God's providence. For while sovereignty is defined by power and right, providence can be best defined by an ordained sense of purpose and wisdom. Or stated in another way, according to Augustine, providence is all things are preserved and governed by the sovereign, wise, and good will of God. And this means, in layman's terms, if we're even pushing below that, this means that everything has purpose and finality, which is sustained and progressed by God. Perhaps we may begin to wonder then, what is the purpose and wisdom of the impromptu incarnation? And on top of that, why was the reception so harsh? Surely there is no regality in being born in a feeding trough that's in your distant relative's basement. And to make matters more destitute, we must also consider that, as we know, the Roman Empire did not deal kindly with Jews, which can be clearly seen in our text as it was with the empire that imposed the decree of the census upon the people of God that they returned to be counted, just numbers, and such a census was not for an, a novel matter like collecting demographical, but for clearing up and oppressing further taxation upon the Jewish people. Because furthermore, commentators say this, that Luke's mention of the infamous census sets up an opposition between the, pro, the proud, formidable empire of Caesar and God's eternal reign. But yet, is there not great irony in this paradox? What they meant for evil is meant for good and the will of God. In that paradox, we see a king in a manger. And the providence of God is clear when our perspectives shift. In the case of an all-knowing God, we must realize that the end will always justify the means. There's not mistakes, there's not accidents. This happened for a reason in his wisdom. And the means that Luke can't help but to point out is the covenantal promise of Christ through the line of David. It is in Christ's reign where harassment and injustice will be no more. He is the one who will come to put an end to the largest and most impressive empire the world has ever seen. These humble beginnings were just a start to something greater, growing like a mustard seed. As little did they know, the Roman Empire, that this infant will come to know no sin. He would become a ransom for many. 
It is this bundle of joy that the weight of the world rests upon. This baby is proof that God has not forgotten his people. It has been a long time since they heard from God. He surely has not forgotten his covenant with them. It is clear and abundant. And this is good news. If you have ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are also partakers in this Lord's covenant, in the new covenant made in his blood and body. This is magnificent to think about how an infant came to save the world. And so as you see, there is far more beauty and grandeur to the birth of Christ than most of the country tends to admit. Consider how much we loosen the story and shorten it just to fit our circumstances and, and make things more marketable. Because, of course, the story appeals more to the masses when you are talking about a little baby coming into the world, sitting in a manger. You can put that on a card. You can put that on a mug. Because ask any parent, once you have a child, they take center stage and you're forgotten. You become an afterthought. But things do change when that baby grows up. Because more so when that baby is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and starts saying some difficult things that we don't want to hear. He's not so cute anymore. Paul is full of wisdom and timeless truth as he writes this to the Corinthians. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This is still so true today. Do we not know why pews overflow on Christmas and Easter? And for the rest of the year, they gather dust. Because it is tradition over faith and ritual over reverence, or perhaps even fire assurance over repentance. We are glad they come. But we must seek the opportunity to partake in preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel. Because when we truly believe on the other half of what Paul says, he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And as a church, we realize this and acknowledge this, we know that we cannot match his providence and his sovereignty. It is not, not all evident in the birth of Christ, that every detail is meticulously planned, not according to an earthly agenda by a heavenly one. In their day and ours, the weary can rejoice because it is the day that the king has come. He put down his crown, stepped away from the father, and humiliated himself in the flesh. And being the good Presbyterians that we are, we push into our Reformed confessions as we see in the Heidelberg and the Q&A 28. The question goes, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? The answer is, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. 
And so this is truth that we serve a loving, compassionate God. That he has come from humble beginnings. So what does this all mean? Where do we go from here? It would be my guess that for most of us here, the doctrines of sovereignty and providence are not new to us. My concern is not whether you are familiar or not, whether you know a lot or a little. My concern is this, that how will these biblical truths transform your life? It's not helpful to anyone else if it's just head knowledge. These matters shouldn't change, just change you. They should also bring you joy. So much joy that if we believe in them, it should help us in some way or another become a non-anxious presence among a world of context of fear and anxiety. That if we know these truths to be a matter of fact, that God's sovereignty and providence are in action, why should we fret the way that we do? Because the God of the universe has come to pursue his church, to bless his church, and he has the power to do all things in his sovereignty and the wisdom to do all things for the good in his providence. And so as his church, he has given us a power and purpose. And in his own words, Jesus promises that I will build my church and the gates of hell should not wage against it. Because church, the king has come to pursue you and serve you. The king humbled himself by coming in a manger. Are you willing to do the same for the lifeless souls that walk around us each and every day? Are you living a life marked by grace and compassion? And if not, what's stopping you? And reflect on that. And so let us pray that these words enliven our hearts and move us to transform and be transformed by the humbleness of Christ. Let us pray.